0: Welcome to the North Sound Church podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you all for worshiping with us this morning. So good to see you on a very special um, week uh, as we uh, celebrate uh, our nation here uh, in a couple of days. So you guys, uh, you kind of did it to me because a couple weeks ago I said I don't do Prophecy. And then what do you tell me? N- numerous of you say <clears throat> we want a sermon on Revelation. Thanks a lot. I, I really uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your kindness and your thoughtfulness in that regard. Um, but was interesting this week as I was preparing for today, uh, today's going to be on Revelation, um, as I was preparing, I thought, you know what? We probably should go a little bit deeper into this. So I tentatively, emphasized tentatively, put it into the fall uh, to uh, to do several weeks uh, on the book of Revelation. So uh, I emphasized tentatively. Barb and I have this conversation where I will say, uh, maybe we should consider, and sometimes she thinks that means we're gonna do it. Uh, I don't know, men, if you, Rest of you have that issue, or women, if you have that with your hub, your spouses. But, yeah, yeah, Crystal, that was a really big nod. Um, so anyway, so we are going to talk today about how to understand the Book of Revelation. And this summer, uh, myself and the pastors are going to be sharing on topics that you have asked us to share on. So although I studied trauma in the Navy, I'm no expert on PTSD, but I have wondered if those of you that are at least my age, if you have experienced um, PTSD as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, the reason I mention that is that I, um, I was old enough, I think I was nine and Barb was eight when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And I can remember it distinctly. We were in Edmonton, Alberta, and Edmonton is closer to where the Russian missiles would come from than here. If you remember that time frame, and uh, in Edmonton, you know it's so close to Russia, you can you can see it or you can almost see it from. <laughs> okay, so first service was much better on that one. Uh, so um, so as kids. We were asked to get under our desks and prepare for the end of the world, right? If if you're my age, it's okay to nod, but but for those of you that are a younger generation, in school, in public school, we were taught how to get under our desks because we weren't sure if the Russians were gonna fire missiles because of the conflict that was going on and uh, whether we, in fact, were going to survive. And I wondered if we get PTSD as you know, as adults from that. It probably is a convenient thing to blame. You think? Maybe. So um, what's interesting, though, is just a few years later, I think that was 1962, a few years later, 1970, a man by the name of Hal Lindsay comes out with a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Yes. Any of you heard of or read The Late Great? Look at that. Look at those hands. So, so, Think about, think about the late 60s when this book came out. So, so the Vietnam War was going on. We were in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we had all been scared because we knew that nuclear war and all of us being wiped out could be a reality. Russia had, was very communistic during the 1960s, and we had Chairman Mao in China and uh, the Cultural Revolution. Things were not very good in the world when Hal Lindsey penned the late great planet Earth. And that kind of put this whole idea of revelation uh, into into a place where uh, we uh, we would be concerned. And we're now living again, I think, in a time of fear. This many years later, when you think about it, we watch our national institutions struggle. We look at Congress struggle. We look at the office of the president's struggle and we wonder what's gonna happen in this next election. We consider what is going on with the Supreme Court. We've had a divisive response to COVID. We've seen riots in Portland, Seattle, elsewhere in the United States and we have increasing political polarization in our nation. We're also hearing from those who believe we are approaching the end of the world and we're approaching the end of the world not because of political realities but because of climate change and an increasingly warmer climate that eventually will wipe all of us out. Others worry about artificial intelligence bringing the end of the world, that artificial intelligence will supplant us and we will either be slaves of artificial intelligence or we will simply be gone and artificial intelligence will reign. And then finally, once again, Russia has threatened the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And we don't know what the response would be if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, what would our response be and what might that lead to in the world? Think about movies over the last couple of decades and the dystopian future that they have described. Movies such as Robocop, The Matrix, Blade Runner, Extinction. Just think about the movies title themselves. The Last Survivors, Mad Max, The Planet of the Apes. You get the idea. These are movies that suggest in a not too distant future, catastrophic things will happen to humanity, and they leave in their wake some fear about what's next. And and into this picture we have a gentleman by the name of Tim LaHaye who introduced books and movies called Left Behind. Wikipedia says this about left behind. Left Behind tells an apocalyptic story about the ending of earth. They say, set in the contemporary era, over a period of seven years, the true believers in Jesus Christ have been raptured. And they tell us that means taken instantly to heaven. Leaving non-believers behind on earth, now a shattered and chaotic world, as people scramble for answers, an obscure Romanian politician named Nicolae Jeti Carpathia rises to become Secretary General of the United Nations, promising to restore peace and stability to all nations. What most of the world does not realize is that, the Car- is that Carpathia is actually the Antichrist, foretold in the Bible, coming to grips with the truth and becoming a born-again Christians, airline pilot Rayford Steele, his daughter Chloe, their pastor Bruce Barnes, and a young journalist Cameron Buck Williams begin their quest as the tribulation force. To help save the lost and prepare for the coming tribulation in which God will rain down judgment on the world for seven years. <clears throat> These movies are called apocalyptic, and they're called apocalyptic from the Greek word apocalypse. And it's interesting if you, um, I don't know if your Bibles, your English Bibles say this, but the Greek Bible, which is what the, the, the New Testament mostly was, was written in, uh, is is called, the, the revelation is actually called the apocalypse. So if we were to transliterate it, just, just put word for word, rather than a translation revelation, uh, the book would read apocalypse. There's all sorts of wild and scary stuff found in this book of 22 chapters. And the big question is, how do we interpret it? along with other passages of scripture like Matthew chapter 24, which is kind of hard to figure out, Mark 13, which is very much like Matthew 24, and the book of Daniel. What do we make of the lamb? The thrones, the earthquake, the four horses, the beasts, hail and fire mixed with blood, a falling star, battle locusts. What do we do with all of that stuff? Well, there are four approaches to Revelation, four ways that we can understand this book. And I um, <clears throat> recognize that um, I, I, in, in pointing and in spending a few moments together, looking at four different ways that I'm going to disappoint many of you who thought today I was going to name the Antichrist and the year in which Jesus was coming back. But alas, uh, I'm not going to uh, to do that this morning. So let's explore these ways of understanding Revelation. And my desire or my goal this morning is to help you get nudged in the direction of doing a little more study or research on your own to come to terms with Revelation, um, but also to remind you of some important truths regardless of which version uh may turn out to be the correct one. Revelation starts this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." So the first view, and these are not in any particular order, is the idealist view. And the idealist view of Revelation takes us back At least as early as Origen, which is in the late 2nd century, so about 100 years after the Bible uh, was uh, closed with John probably writing the um, last book. And uh, so about 100 years later, Origen adopted this perspective, but we know more about it from St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the great church leader of the 4th century, who also adopted this idealist perspective. And so we need to to consider it seriously because of the power of these leaders in the early church. The idealist view adopts an allegorical interpretation of Revelation to the extent that we don't look in history for specific interpretations, historical interpretations of what takes place in Revelation. In other words, their perspective is that it's a story of the church and good versus evil that applies to virtually any time in our history. That the forces of evil are working against the forces of good. And in the allegorical interpretation, it could be happening at any time, including the time in which they lived, including the time in which we live. It's important for us to understand that in America... We can afford to think about the prophetic. We can afford to think about the great tribulation. But when you look at the history of the church, including the church right now in places like China, Iran, elsewhere in the world, they don't have to look forward to the great tribulation. They're experiencing the great tribulation where they are, the kinds of things that they're going through. Do you know that martyrdom, is something that takes place regularly in the world, the taking of the life of Christians. In Nigeria, it has been horrendous. And so these things, for Christians in these situations, revelation is being lived out daily in their lives. Now, this view has some positive things going for it, It doesn't have to try to align the events of Revelation with things that are happening in history. It can simply say, this is the way it is with good facing evil. It also finds the battle between good and evil, as I mentioned, in every generation. So it's relevant To every time in the history of the church it isn't something that's just off in the future that we don't worry about but there's also some challenges to the idealist position and one of them is in the verse that i read earlier the first verse of revelation that says the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place must soon take place it would appear from those words that there's an assumption that this stuff is going to actually happen in history in a a tangible kind of a way. So we're now going to take a moment and look at the second perspective on this. And that is what we call the praetorist view. Praetor is Latin for past. And this view of revelation believes that What we read in Revelation has actually already happened in history. There are two perspectives here. One are full praetorists that believe it's all, the whole thing has happened, and partial praetorists that believe that chapters 4 to 19 have happened, but 20 to 22, which happens at the end of time, is still yet to come. Some scholars point to a Jesuit priest In the 16th century as the author or the origin of this others point back to the fourth century or the 300s when this view began to be articulated it's um it it's revelation we believe was written by john and scholars generally believe that it was written about 90 or 95 a.d But in order for the Praetorist perspective to be true, it has to be, Revelation has to be written before 70 AD. And the prophecies that are contained in Revelation, they believe were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem and the the taking down of the temple, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. So in AD 70, there was a Jewish rebellion against the Romans and there was a terrible uh, their terrible war on the Jews ending in much death and in the destruction of the temple. So the Praetorists believe that the fulfillment of Revelation took place at that time, AD 70. And their, their view is supported by Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, um, who believes that this... Uh, kind of thing uh, took place uh, uh, back then, who showed significant parallels in what actually took place to the book of Revelation. Now, as you might suspect, there are some problems with this viewpoint as well, because things don't quite match up what happened in AD 70 and the book of Revelation. There isn't an exact alignment. And so those that have this perspective then resort to allegory for the pieces that they can't They can't make fit. The other challenge, of course, is that most New Testament scholars believe that Revelation was written about 90 to 95 AD. The other thing perhaps in this uh, interpretation is that It's difficult to see the continuity of events between chapters 4 to 19 and then 20 to 22 uh, which features the things that are going to happen in the future some of you may be familiar with the name hank hanagraff hank Hanegraaff is a well-known i think maybe a radio personality but hank uh, believes this uh, praetorist perspective on revelation the third perspective is called the historical view and that is The historical view believes that that Revelation marks the history of Western Europe. So if we interpret Revelation correctly, we basically see in Revelation as we move through it, the history of Western Europe from the time of the disciples to the time in which the interpreters who have the historical view lived. So the first three chapters of Revelation from this perspective describe the seven ages of the church. The breaking of the seals in chapters 4 to 7 describe the fall of the Roman Empire. The trumpet judgments in chapters 8 to 10 describe the invasion of Rome by the barbarians, including the Vandals, Huns, Saracens, and Turks. And the Antichrist is identified with the papacy, the Roman Catholic papacy, in chapters 11 to 13. And then... Uh, There is the fight with the church and the papacy, the true church and the papacy. Chapters 14 to 16 mark the judgment of God on the Catholic church. And chapters 17 to 19 describe the overflow of Catholicism. Now, there's some obvious problems with this view because uh, it was continually identified regardless of these Western European church leaders. It was identified sort of with each one of them and with their time frame. And so someone counted about 50 different perspectives on the timing that is described here in, the, in this particular passage. The other problem is that it has a Western Europe-centric interpretation what about the rest of the world why would god be particularly concerned just with western europe and in revelation giving western european history and so there's some concern about why um, why it would be focused not on the rest of the world or the whole world but western europe and finally this perspective would mean little to the early christians for whom it was given john writing let's say he's writing in 90 a.d uh, talking about European history, it would be like how 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 does this relate to those? How do they how would they understand uh, the nature of it? And one of the principles of interpretation is that it means something to the people who receive it the first time. But here's what's interesting to me is there's almost a who's who. Of Western European church leaders who believe this perspective that is describing Western European history, the Catholic Church, them, etc. And here's the list: John Wycliffe, John Knox, William Tyndall, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, C. H. Spurgeon, and Matthew Henry. That's quite a list of people that adopt this particular perspective. Fourth is the futurist view futurists believe that the events in matthew 24 and revelation 4 to 22 will happen in the future so 4 to 19 refer to a time of tribulation when god's wrath is poured out on the earth for seven years sometimes called the great tribulation god judges the world And it's judged as we see in the succeeding chapters with seals, trumpets, and bowls of wrath that are poured out on the world. Depending on your interpretation, Christians are now gone, and so it's the world that is left upon which this wrath is poured out. The 13th chapter describes a literal political and religious world leader in the future represented by two beasts. Chapter 17 describes a harlot that is the church that has fallen away from God. The 19th chapter describes the second coming of Jesus and the battle of Armageddon, followed by a thousand-year millennial rule of Christ on the earth. The final chapters refer to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the futurists trace the origin of this perspective way back to the beginning of the church as well. In fact, perhaps some of the earliest leaders, Clement of Rome, about 98 A.D., Justin Martyr in the early 2nd century, Irenaeus in the early 2nd century, and Tertullian in the late 2nd century um, are, um, are, are, are proponents of this particular view. And if it sounds the most familiar to you, it's because it has happened in the last 60, 70 years or so that this is the most popular interpretation among evangelical Christians, especially since the late great planet Earth left behind and other kinds of perspectives um, have put this forward. Some of you may be familiar with the Schofield Reference Bible, which is kind of a touch point for this perspective, as well as Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute are organizations or institutions that adopt this perspective. Critics of this perspective suggest that this interpretation makes a major part of Revelation irrelevant to those for whom it was originally written. They also say apocalyptic imagery that we see in Revelation is meant to be interpreted allegorically. It's not meant to be taken literally. So they would point to something like the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where... On the one hand, you can simply read the book as a story of of four children during World War II who went out into the country to be saved by the bombing, like uh, in the first service, Roy Stubbs was here. That actually happened to Roy. um, Out into the country to be safe, and this was an adventure that happened, and that's the story. It's a little fantasy. On the other hand, allegorically, It's quite clear that C.S. Lewis, as a committed Christian, wrote the book in a way to describe the lion as Jesus Christ. And the lion's death and resurrection speak of the death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins that we see in the gospel. It's a beautiful allegorical story of the gospel. So at this point, many of you may be saying, Thank you for laying out these views, Pastor Barry. Now, which one do you believe? (laughs) And you know I'm going to disappoint you, right? I want to encourage you to do a little more work on your own and to um, come to an understanding yourself of this interesting and somewhat mysterious book. There are books available that you can purchase that will go into this deeper. There's also a lot of great stuff free online. If you just search, um, you can look at some of the uh, references for understanding these four views. But I want to finish by talking for a moment about what we agree on. I I don't know what view you have of Revelation, but there are things that I think 100% of us in this room agree on. We agree that God is in charge of history. We agree that ultimately his will is going to be done. We believe in the second coming. We believe that good will prevail in the end. We believe we will be with him forever. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Regardless of what view you end up with, I think the most important thing that you can take away from this talk this morning is What does this story mean? What does this wonderful story mean to us today? How does it affect our lives today on July 2nd, 2023? Jesus is coming back. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. What part do we have in this kingdom work today? I want to read you a paragraph from Tom Wright. It's an extended quotation, and because I, I'm reading it, I think it's it's a little maybe harder for you to follow, but I encourage you, please, please listen to this. He says it so eloquently, that's why I'm not trying to paraphrase it. This is about what we can do now because of this future. He says, what we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel, if we're following Jesus, and if we're indwelled, energized, and directed by the Spirit is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. He says once more, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. That's what it says. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, All spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrection power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. This is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. Wow. Friends, in the final analysis, regardless of which understanding, of revelation, we land on. There's a great truth here, and that is that the Bible says our lives matter right now and that it makes a difference for time and eternity. And the lasting message of revelation is captured by that hymn that says, God gives us strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Rabbi Hugo Grin tells of his experience in Auschwitz as a boy. Food supplies were meager. They, what little they had, they had to hoard for when they would need it. Their situation was so desperate. And yet as a little boy, he watched his father in Auschwitz cut off a large chunk of margarine and set it aside so that the, the oil could be used to light the lamp of Hanukkah. And when he talked to his father about what seemed such an extravagant waste of perfectly good food, his father responded. He said, We know that it is possible to live for three weeks without food, but without hope, it's impossible to live properly for three minutes. And friends, our hope is not only in the culmination of history but that as God's children experiencing the love of God for us, we know that as we continue in this earthly pilgrimage in good days and bad days, we never walk alone. Rogers and Hammerstein's musical Carousel came out in 1945. They introduced a beautiful song, well, many beautiful songs, but this one in particular. And... You may be surprised to know that the Beatles were not the only popular group to come out of Liverpool, England. In 1963, Jerry and the Pacemakers took that song that came out in 1945 as a part of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical and popularized it. And it became so popular that it's now sung at every home game of the... Liverpool Premier League Football Club. It's called You'll Never Walk Alone. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, for your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. In 1992, the Summer Olympic Games were held in Barcelona, Spain and Britain's Derek Redmond was about to fulfill a dream, the dream of winning the gold medal in the 400-meter race. And his dream was in sight as in the semifinals, he took off and he Ran and as he rounded the final corner, he saw the finish line in sight. But suddenly in his right leg, he felt a sharp pain go up the back of his leg and he fell face down on the track with a torn right hamstring. Sports Illustrated recorded the dramatic events They said, as the medical attendants were approaching, Redmond fought to his feet. It was animal instinct, he would say later. He set out hopping in a crazed attempt to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a large man in a T-shirt came out of the stands, hurled aside a security guard and ran to Redmond, embracing him. It was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. You don't have to do this, he told his weeping son. Yes, I do, said Derek. Well then, said Jim, we're going to finish this together. And they did. Fighting off security men, the son's head sometimes buried in his father's shoulder. They stayed in Derek's lane all the way to the end. As the crowd gasped, then rose and howled and wept. Derek didn't walk away with the gold medal, but he walked away with an incredible memory of a father who, when he saw his son in pain, left his seat in the stands to help him finish the race. Friends, no matter how you read the book of Revelation, remember that our our Father truly does promise us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He helps us finish the race. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word and for what it means to our lives. Lord, there is much in the Bible that is difficult to understand, but there are many things that are so clear. And your love for us that gives us strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow is so clear. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.